You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part three and the conclusion of our series on the Red River Campaign. Last time out in part two, we discussed the Union loss at the Battle of Mansfield, the follow-up battle at Pleasant Hill that looked like a Union victory, but that uh, Union General Nathaniel Banks interpreted as a defeat, and then General Banks's fateful decision to call off the campaign against Shreveport, Louisiana. That decision left both the Union Army, uh, Banks's Army of the Gulf, and the Union Navy, Admiral David Dixon Porter's impressive freshwater fleet, in the position of needing to extract themselves from the Louisiana Bayou before disaster struck. They were in a no-win situation, literally. After Banks called off the campaign, there was pretty much no conceivable way that the Red River campaign would end in anything that could be called a Union success. For the leaders, the goal had to be just to take the loss as gracefully as possible and focus on avoiding a catastrophe. Confederate General Richard Taylor recognized the Yankees' uh, unenviable position, so his objective was to help bring about that same catastrophe. Taylor's problem was that his boss, Confederate General Kirby Smith, had just stripped Taylor of nearly half of his force so that Kirby Smith could personally lead those men north to supplement the Confederates who were opposing a Union operation moving south into Louisiana from Little Rock, Arkansas. That left Richard Taylor with only about 5,000 rebels to oppose 30,000 Yankees, composed of Banks's Army of the Gulf, which numbered about uh, 20,000, and supplemented by the 10,000 uh, Midwestern veterans dispatched by General Sherman and commanded by Union General A.J. Smith. And that's not to mention the 90 or so Union vessels with over 200 naval guns under Admiral David Dixon Porter. But Taylor's lack of manpower and the overwhelming numerical disparity wasn't going to prevent him from trying. And the rebels did have some important advantages— most notably the challenging Louisiana topography that was going to make things very difficult for the withdrawing Federals. During the several days after the Union Army and Navy split up, planning to reunite at Springfield Landing for their final push against Shreveport, while General Banks was losing at Mansfield, tying at Pleasant Hill, and then conceding the field to General Richard Taylor, while all that had been going on, Admiral Porter's freshwater fleet had continued its progression upriver toward Shreveport. In that first week of April 1864, Admiral Porter still expected, and he had no reason to doubt, 
Well, no reason other than his lack of confidence in Nathaniel Banks that the combined arms force would in fact reunite at Springfield Landing and then launch their assault on Shreveport. But when Porter's boats started arriving at Springfield Landing, Banks was, of course, nowhere to be found. Because he was already on his way back to Grand Decor, back to where the Army and the Navy had originally split, moving in the opposite direction of Shreveport. You'll recall that Admiral Porter was skeptical of the campaign when he had learned who would be leading the Army. Porter's fear had been that Banks would abandon the Navy upriver in rebel territory and that the Navy would have to fight its way out with no land-based support. Not long after arriving at Springfield Landing, Admiral Porter found that his concerns had become a reality when he learned the results of Mansfield, Pleasant Hill, and General Banks' subsequent retreat. Once he received that news, Porter recognized that his mission had changed from taking Shreveport to maneuvering his fleet out of hostile territory with as few losses as possible. Unfortunately for Admiral Porter, Banks's retreat was not the only bad news. The already low waters of the Red River were dropping, and they were dropping more quickly than one would ordinarily expect from dry weather alone. The Red River was precariously shallow already, especially for the big ironclad gunboats, so this was a very concerning development. Now, there were a few factors that caused the Red River to be lower than anticipated. There was the drier-than-normal weather that certainly contributed, but the Confederates also had taken affirmative steps to impede the Union Freshwater Navy by lowering the waters. Professor James Hollinsworth describes the Confederate efforts thusly, and the uh, Gary Joyner, to whom Hollinsworth uh, refers is an LSU professor and cartographer and an expert on the Red River campaign. Quoting Hollinsworth, quote, Groundbreaking research by Gary Joyner has discovered that the Confederates were actually diverting water from the Red River into a bayou south of Shreveport. In fact, the Confederate engineers had blown a dam, which allowed the diversion to occur almost a week before the Union Army had started for Shreveport from Alexandria. The dry weather helped, but Porter's gunboats were trapped by the premeditated resourcefulness of Confederate engineers, end quote. And just to clarify, the uh, Union gunboats aren't exactly trapped yet um, where we are in the story. But Admiral Porter had already recognized that they were in a tight situation. If the water level dropped too quickly before they could get further downriver, the boats would be stranded in rebel territory. And from there, land-based rebel gunners could take their time drawing down on the boats from higher ground. Porter Flotilla would be sitting ducks, or fish in a barrel. Well, assuming the ducks or the fish have an um, array of naval guns to shoot back. Uh, The idea is that the immobilized boats could be destroyed or captured and repurposed for use by the Confederates. Now, Admiral Porter's thinking was that um, with the news of Banks' defeat at Mansfield and his subsequent withdrawal, the campaign for Shreveport was effectively over. So he ordered the flotilla to begin its own withdrawal downriver, where they would hopefully find deeper, safer waters before it was too late. The withdrawal was a difficult operation. Navigation alone was perilous due to the uh, Red River's shallow waters and unpredictability and the need to escape quickly. 
But the steady supply of Confederate riflemen continuously sniping at Union sailors from the riverbanks made for even more stressful maneuvering. One ironclad got hung up on an invisible underwater log. Uh, Fortunately, Porter's flagship, the Black Hawk, was able to pull it free with a tow line. And another transport drew too close to the bank and got stuck in the mud. And two gunboats, the Rob Roy and the Lexington, ran into each other while both were trying to avoid the same shallow area. Throughout all of this, any sailor who emerged on deck to try to help free a grounded or damaged boat or to get a better look at the depth of the water ahead risked becoming the next target for the rebel snipers who regularly harassed the Union sailors during the retreat. Around April 11th, two days after the Battle of Pleasant Hill, several of the Union boats needed to stop for repairs at a location called Blair's Landing. The pit-stopped boats included four transports called the Hastings, the Clarabelle, the Alice Vivian, and the Emerald, along with the gunboats Osage, Lexington, Rob Roy, and Porter's flagship Blackhawk. You'll recall that after Pleasant Hill, Richard Taylor had sent his cavalry commander, Tom Green, with most of the rebel cavalry on a mission to intercept the Union flotilla along the Red River. Taylor directed Green to a location, Blair's Landing, where the rebels believed the river's path and the surrounding topography would let them threaten the Union boats from land. The goal wasn't just to harass Admiral Porter's flotilla as it tried to make a getaway, though that was certainly part of it. The rebel cavaliers wanted to dish out enough damage to sink the boats or force the Yankees to scuttle them. Or, in the best-case scenario, the boats offered tremendously high value if they could be captured. Not only were they loaded with supplies, weapons, and ammunition that the rebels absolutely needed, a captured Yankee gunboat converted to a rebel gunboat provided a more effective means of confronting other Yankee gunboats than the rebels could ordinarily muster. The leader of the rebel cavalry detachment moving to confront Admiral Porter's boats was General Tom Green. According to his Wikipedia page, before the war he had been a, quote, Canadian comedian, actor, and rapper known for shock comedy. He found mainstream prominence via his MTV show, The Tom Green Show, end quote. Before the war, and uh, we're returning to uh, legitimate history now, uh, Tom Green was a Virginia-born, Tennessee-raised Texan who had fought under General Sam Houston in the Texas Revolution, including at the pivotal Battle of San Jacinto, where the Texans defeated a Mexican army led by Santa Ana. San Jacinto occurred in 1836, a full 28 years before the Red River Campaign. Green was just shy of 22 years old at San Jacinto. Uh, That means that when our story takes place, he was almost 50 years old, which is pretty long in the tooth for a Civil War cavalry officer. Uh, By comparison, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest turned 40 uh, the year that the war started, and Jeb Stewart turned 30 in 1863. After Texas's independence, Green received a big chunk of land in southeastern Texas, courtesy of the Texas Congress. After a brief stint in the Texas Republic's Congress, Green, who had studied law but never practiced, worked for 20 years as the clerk of the Texas Supreme Court, notwithstanding a sabbatical in 1846 to lead a Texas cavalry company fighting in the Mexican-American War. Starting in 1861, Green commanded a Texas Cavalry Regiment, 
And the next year, his regiment joined the Confederates' failed New Mexico campaign that we discussed recently. Green often gets credit for the rebel victory at Valverde um, as the commanding officer who, who actually directed the battle. Secondary sources that I reviewed for that episode said that General Sibley had, was not in command at Valverde because he was uh, sick. Um, but there are other sources that say Green took over because General Sibley was drunk when the battle started. Either way, uh, after the difficult return trip to Texas, Green ended up in charge of the cavalry riding under General Richard Taylor, and he received the rank of Brigadier General in May 1863, and he made a name for himself with a series of solid performances in the Bayou Campaign later that year. Now, I want to pause here for a second and mention that uh, most of the outline for this um, mini-biography of Confederate General Tom Green is drawn from Samuel W. Mitchum's Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals. Uh, Mitchum's book was um, only recently released, and Regnery History was nice enough to send me a review copy, which I have uh, thus far found to be uh, well-organized with a lot more detail than you would ordinarily expect from a, a compilation like this that has 426 entries. Um, I'm thinking it might uh, come along in my backpack for the next battlefield visit, though it's a, it's a big, heavy book, so with a little luck, they'll release a paperback version. Mr. Mitchum will hopefully consider doing another one of these for the Union generals. Now, this isn't a paid promotion uh, or anything, but I, I thought it was only fair to mention the book since uh, they sent it to me, and it has been genuinely helpful. And um, I'm also about to quote Samuel Mitchum's article about Tom Green. Quote, There is no doubt that Thomas Green was a brilliant cavalry commander and a kind gentleman when he was sober. This became less common in 1864. He had a drinking problem, and alcohol unleashed his temper. He performed well in the retreat up the Red River and in the Battle of Mansfield, but was apparently intoxicated during the Battle of Pleasant Hill when he sent two of his cavalry brigades into an ambush. They extracted themselves, but only after suffering heavy casualties, end quote. Okay, now to merge the two plot lines. So General Tom Green has established himself as a solid, occasionally excellent cavalry commander, but he also has a drinking problem that seriously inhibits his performance when it gets the better of him. After Pleasant Hill, uh, at which Green underperformed and may have been drinking, Richard Taylor sent him with about 2,000 Cavaliers to try to intercept the Union flotilla at Blair's Landing, where the Union boats would have to navigate a tight turn on the winding Red River. Green's orders from Dick Taylor were to interfere with the Union Navy's retreat and to damage, or better yet, capture Admiral Porter's boats. By the time General Green and his men made it to Blair's Landing on April 12th, most of the Union flotilla had already passed by that spot, and were miles further south, continuing their withdrawal. But the rebels found the transport Hastings moored to the riverbank for repairs, and three other transports and four gunboats, including Porter's own Black Hawk, were further out in the water. What followed was one of the Civil War's most unusual battles. General Greene started by ordering the rebel artillery to unload on the Hastings, which responded by detaching from the riverbank and maneuvering further into the river as quickly as possible uh, for the safety of the gunboats. When the firing started, one of the Union gunboats, the Monitor Osage, 
headed toward the fire to try to protect the Hastings, but in doing so, it ran aground. And the Black Hawk, with Admiral Porter on board, responded by moving to assist the Osage, trying to yank it free of the mud. With all this going on, the rebel artillery is relentlessly targeting the Union boats from the western bank of the Red River. They're at very close range, the guns are positioned to be difficult to target, and the Confederate artillerists are on the money, landing hit after hit. And the rebel soldiers who are not involved in firing the artillery are dismounted and are showering rifle and pistol fire at the boats. The small arms fire forced sailors to take cover to go below deck, which made navigating and withdrawing downriver even more difficult. Now, the big problem that General Greene and his cavalrymen encountered was that the relatively small four-inch guns that they had with them couldn't do much more than cosmetic damage to the boat's tough exteriors. What looked like perfect shots bounced off the iron hulls, making a lot of noise and usually leaving a noticeable dent, but not threatening the boat's structural integrity. And of course, the rebels' other major problem is that the Union boats, though vulnerable due to the limited mobility in the shallows, were by no means defenseless. The gunboats were shooting back at the rebels with significantly more firepower, at least in terms of the, uh, the caliber of the artillery. And I should point out that the, uh, the fighting is mostly between the rebels on the shore and the Osage and Blackhawk. Uh, there were other Union boats in the area, but they struggled to find a line of fire without running aground. But after nearly two hours of back-and-forth fire between rebels on land and the Osage and Blackhawk stuck in the shallows, another Union gunboat, the Lexington, maneuvered into a position from which it could target the Rebels' four-gun battery well, with the Lexington's much larger guns. Once the Lexington's gunners found their range, it wasn't long before the guns on the riverbank had gone quiet. Now, with his artillery taken out of the fight, General Greene rallied his horsemen for a dashing charge out into the shallow water in hopes of boarding and capturing the Osage. The Union soldiers and sailors, though, had arranged some of the pilfered cotton bales on the deck to provide cover and managed to repel the assault. The rebels took about 200 casualties at Blair's Landing, but the most damaging came during the last-ditch, unsuccessful charge. The Osage's captain, Thomas Selfridge, noticed a rebel officer eagerly rallying and inspiring the Confederates for the attack. Selfridge directed his cannoneers to target the officer who was obviously leading from horseback, which they did. According to Selfridge's report, the cannoneer aimed high, but the shot spread during its flight and a piece connected with the targeted rebel officer. Now, uh, this is rebel cavalry we're talking about, so needless to say, the unfortunate target was also the highest-ranking man on the scene, General Tom Green. Uh, we'll return briefly to Samuel Mitchum and let him describe the uh, somewhat gruesome result. Quote, He was struck by an iron ball from a heavy naval gun. It tore off the top half of General Green's skull, killing him instantly. End quote. Though with no more artillery and their commander out of the picture, the remaining rebels retreated away from the river, bringing the Battle of Blair's Landing to an end. Both sides' casualties were relatively light and no boats were destroyed or captured, but the rebels did manage to inflict a colossal amount of visible damage to the boats. 
Admiral Porter lamented um, after the Battle of Blair's Landing that his prized flagship, Black Hawk, was, quote, so pitted with bullet holes that it is no exaggeration to say that one could not place the hand anywhere without covering a shot mark. There was not a place six inches square not perforated by a bullet, end quote. And a Union soldier traveling with the transports noted that, quote, the sides of some of the transports are half shot away, and their smokestacks look like huge pepper boxes, end quote. Notwithstanding the noticeable damage at Blair's Landing, no Union boats were lost, and after the Osage and Black Hawk escaped the mud, all the boats continued their withdrawal downriver. You probably remember that at the beginning of the episode, we mentioned that part of the plan for the campaign was for Union General Frederick Steele to bring an additional 10,000 Union troops south from Union-held Little Rock, Arkansas, to join in the attack on Shreveport. We haven't really discussed Steele's portion of the campaign because uh, the way things played out, it ended up not having much of an impact on what happened with Banks and Porter. Steele hadn't been fully sold on the plan, especially the part about his men's extended march through Confederate territory where local militia and guerrillas were active. Nonetheless, he moved out from Little Rock on March 23rd, uh, which was about 10 days behind schedule, and on April 1st, consolidated his men with 5,000 more Union troops marching from Fort Smith, Arkansas, under Brigadier John Thayer. Steele was expecting General Thayer to arrive with extra provisions for the trip south into Louisiana. But when the two groups united at Arkadelphia, they soon realized that both had failed to bring along adequate provisions for the campaign. The area they would be moving through wouldn't provide much opportunity to grab what they needed along the way, so it was a problem that they needed to address before moving against Shreveport. So Steele modified his plans to allow for a pit stop in Camden, Arkansas, where they believed a Confederate garrison, once captured, along with the compelled generosity of the local residents, would provide the necessary food and water to continue the campaign against Shreveport. What's up, dude? After first maneuvering Confederate General Sterling Price's Arkansas command out of the way, and then dealing with heavy rains and washed-out roads, Generals Steele and Thayer arrived in Camden on April 16th, only to find the garrison empty of men and provisions. From Camden, Steele ordered numerous federal foragers to search the surrounding area for provisions. After a couple days, while the foragers were in the process of returning, Confederate cavalry commanded by Brigadiers John Marmaduke and Samuel Maxey caught them off guard at Poison Spring and dealt a heavy blow to the Federals, leaving them disorganized and weakened by heavy casualties. To the extent the Union foragers had been able to appropriate enough provisions from the locals, their supply situation was now even worse, because during the fighting at Camden, Marmaduke's and Maxey's men burned the nearly 200 supply wagons carrying the Union stores. Adding insult to injury, the rebel cavalry included Choctaw Indians, who reportedly took the scalps of some of the fallen Union soldiers. Steele delayed in Camden for a few days to try to decide on a course of action. During that time, he received good news, and he also received bad news. The good news was that a supply wagon train from Pine Bluff had managed to slip through Confederate General Sterling Price's men, 
who had loosely surrounded Camden. And the bad news was that Steele learned the results of Banks' loss at Mansfield and his subsequent decision to abandon the Shreveport campaign. Encouraged by the supplies from Pine Bluff, Steele directed another column of wagons to visit Pine Bluff and return with more supplies. Around 1,600 Union soldiers accompanied the wagons, which totaled over 200, including civilian-known wagons sent by cotton speculators. While they traveled for Pine Bluff, again delayed by the poor road conditions due to recent heavy rains, around 2,500 Confederate cavalry under Brigadier James Fagan rushed to position themselves between the Union Column and Pine Bluff. After traveling more than 50 miles, the rebels set up an ambush at Mark's Mill for the morning of April 25th. The Union soldiers and wagons set out in the morning and before long came into contact with rebel cavalry to their front. After some back-and-forth fighting, another rebel force appeared on the Union right flank, followed by more rebel cavalry on the Union left. Now nearly surrounded and heavily outnumbered, the Federals kept up the fight for several hours, but couldn't protect the supply train or pull off an escape. And when the fighting ended, the ambushed Union supply wagon had been completely destroyed, and its escort had taken a disastrous 1,300 casualties out of 1,600 men. Now, a good chunk of those were captured when the Federals were finally forced to surrender, but there were plenty of killed and wounded before that point. Confederate losses were about 300. About 100 or so of the Union men who escaped at Mark's Mill made their way back to Camden and reported the results of the Battle of Mark's Mill to General Steele. Steele concluded that he and his men were in a very vulnerable situation, and so he ordered a retreat back to Little Rock. As they began the march from Camden the evening of April 26th, bound for Little Rock, Confederate General Kirby Smith was arriving in Arkansas in command of a Confederate force that included the men that he had taken from Richard Taylor and brought up from Louisiana. Now, remember, Kirby Smith took men away from Richard Taylor so that Kirby Smith could use those same men to confront Union General Frederick Steele's campaign against Shreveport that was coming from Little Rock, Arkansas, to the north. And that was a decision that led Taylor to despise Kirby Smith for the rest of his life, because it prevented Taylor from landing a coup de grace on Nathaniel Banks's Union Army of the Gulf. But then, by the time Kirby Smith actually arrived in Arkansas with the rebel soldiers that he had taken from Richard Taylor, by that time, General Frederick Steele had already abandoned his attack on Shreveport. Kirby Smith's men caught up with Steele's withdrawing Federals on the evening of April 29th as the Yankee engineers were constructing a pontoon bridge to cross the Saline River at Jenkins Ferry. After some skirmishing, the fighting stopped for the night and Steele ordered his men to dig in at a spot that offered protection on both flanks. Kirby Smith ordered an attack, but the Union Center was strong with breastworks for cover and a swamp and river on either side wouldn't allow for a flank attack. After just shy of 1,000 fruitless casualties, Kirby Smith called off the attack, allowing Steele's men to cross the Saline River using the engineer's newly constructed bridge. From there, it was a relatively short march back to Little Rock, where General Steele and his worn-down army arrived on May 2nd, having concluded their role in the Red River Campaign. General Steele's month-long trip 
out from Little Rock into Camden and back again, and the fighting during that trip is usually called the Camden Expedition. The Camden Expedition was a complete failure except for one big thing. It diverted rebel soldiers away from Dick Taylor's command, thereby potentially saving Nathaniel Banks's bacon in Louisiana. Okay, we're going to return now to Louisiana, uh, which means that to pick up where we left off, we need to rewind a couple weeks. We had battles on back-to-back days with Mansfield on April 9th, and then Pleasant Hill on the 10th. Mansfield was a clear rebel victory, and Pleasant Hill was more of a draw. But after Pleasant Hill, Union General Nathaniel Banks decided to pull back to Grand Ecor along the Red River, where he hoped to reunite with Admiral Porter's flotilla. Professor Henry Robertson tells us that after Pleasant Hill uh, and Banks's decision to abandon the operation against Shreveport, quote, the campaign turned into a dismal rout, end quote. For his part, Admiral Porter was also pulling back to Grand Ecor, having decided that withdrawal was the only rational course of action after learning of Banks's loss at Mansfield and the subsequent decision to retreat to the river. The Union Navy's withdrawal was slowed by low water and by Confederate cavalry under General Tom Green, who had been tasked by General Dick Taylor with interfering with the Union gunboat's retreat. At the somewhat odd Battle of Blair's Landing on April 12th, Green's cavaliers unsuccessfully attempted to destroy a Union transport tied to the riverbank for repairs and its gunboat escort. That cavalry versus gunboat battle concluded with the gruesome death of Confederate Cavalry General Tom Green. Okay, the long and short of it is that General Richard Taylor was smelling blood after Pleasant Hill. He thinks he has the politician slash General Nathaniel Banks on the ropes and that Banks was in the deep water and over his head. So Taylor wanted to score a knockout blow. The problem was that General Kirby Smith, uh, a frequent thorn in Taylor's side, pulled the rug out from underneath him by pickpocketing three of Taylor's divisions, which left Taylor shortchanged with only 5,000 men. Taylor no longer had the horses to go all in and commit whole hog to a full tilt battle against the Yankees. Even so, Taylor shadowed Banks' withdrawal still hoping to have the last laugh by springing a carefully crafted trap to put General Banks in checkmate. Everybody got that? A few days after Blair's landing, the Union Army and Navy reunited at Grand Ecor. Grand Ecor is the point on the Red River about halfway between Shreveport and Alexandria, where they had previously separated. And at Grand Ecor, Banks surprises everyone by starting to talk about taking another run at Shreveport. But a few of his staff officers were able to explain that the withdrawal after Pleasant Hill and the Navy's already moving back downriver and the lowering water made Shreveport a no longer realistic goal. The focus now needed to be getting out without the whole thing turning into a calamity. The river level had already dropped to the point that just getting back to the Mississippi was going to be a real challenge for the gunboats. The Red River was shallower than the boats were used to anyway, and it was expected to get lower as spring turned to summer. And the lowering waters were lowered further by a Confederate makeshift canal that moved some Red River water into a tributary, 
At the current depths, the ironclads, in particular, simply couldn't navigate many areas of the river. So sending the gunboats back upriver was a non-starter, and the army needed the support and protection of the naval guns to overcome Shreveport's defenses. Not to mention, the April 15th deadline for A.J. Smith and his men to rejoin General Sherman and the Army of the Tennessee for their campaign against Atlanta, the deadline that General Grant had set, had already come and gone. So after a little more bickering, General Banks and Admiral Porter formally decided to give up on the campaign, and they left Grand Ecor headed toward Alexandria on or about April 17th. A.J. Smith's more experienced force was placed at the rear of the column as it marched. Their job was to watch out for surprise attacks on the Yankee rear, but they also stayed busy destroying any Confederate military assets that they came across, and the occasional non-military assets as well. Confederate General Richard Taylor was looking for an opportunity to further damage Banks' army, and he got a chance to do so at Monette's Ferry, also called Cane River Crossing, where the Yankee army would need to cross the Cane River, a tributary of the Red south of Natchitoches, uh, to continue the march toward Alexandria. Taylor sent a couple thousand rebel cavaliers under Brigadier General Hamilton B. to get around and in front of the Yankee column. The rebel cavalry positioned itself at the river crossing ahead of the Federal Army and settled into a very strong position, with both flanks protected by the landscape. The plan was for the cavalry to hold that position, slowing down the Union Army and fixing it in place. Then the rest of General Taylor's force would converge for an attack from the Union rear and on a flank. It was a pretty well-laid trap, but ultimately it didn't work. The Yankees had sniffed out the ambush, but they didn't want to attack straight into Hamilton B.'s cavalry to get out. So Brigadier General William Emery dispatched a brigade to try to find another way to get across the river. They had to wade out into waist-deep, alligator-filled water, but they did find a passable ford. Getting across let Emery's brigade flank the rebel cavalry that was occupying the original crossing. Here, the Confederate general in command of the cavalry, Hamilton B., believed that his position was now compromised, and General B. ordered a withdrawal, which cleared the way for the Federals to cross, uh, sped up by the pontoon bridge. But General Richard Taylor thought that General Hamilton B. had misinterpreted the situation, that the rebel cavalry's position had been, or that it should have been, secure, and that B's over-anxious withdrawal cost the rebels a golden opportunity to do serious damage to Banks' retreating army. Dick Taylor, who was uh, not shy about uh, criticizing subordinates, or um, superiors for that matter, um, anyone really, Taylor had a laundry list of criticisms for B. According to Taylor, B misallocated his men, leaving more than were necessary to protect supply lines and leaving his flanks too lightly manned. He relied too heavily on the natural strength of the position when he should have been digging in. And, of course, he retreated when he should have been forcing the issue to allow the rest of Taylor's army to hit the Yankee rear and flank. Now, B obviously saw the situation differently, and he maintained that he was undermanned and undersupplied for the appointed task, had insufficient time to fortify properly, And had he not withdrawn, the 2,000 rebel cavaliers would have been encircled 
and captured or destroyed. Either way, the Union Army avoided the trap before Taylor could attack, and having safely crossed the Cane River, the Yankees continued on toward Alexandria. General Nathaniel Banks and his Yankee soldiers began filing into Alexandria on April 27th. Waiting for Banks in Alexandria was a sternly worded communication from General Grant that officially terminated the Red River Campaign. When General Banks had last been in Alexandria, back in March, he had received orders from Grant unambiguously saying that he had the use of A.J. Smith and the 10,000 men borrowed from the Army of the Tennessee until April 15th, by which point they were to rejoin General Sherman. That deadline was almost two weeks past, and General Grant didn't like that his orders had been disregarded. Grant directed Banks to return all of the men currently under his command to securely held Union bases further south in Louisiana. Once there, the soldiers could prepare for redeployment elsewhere, and it was implied, uh, though not declared outright, um, that the men should expect their next assignment to come under a different commander. Admiral David Porter's flotilla also began arriving in Alexandria on the 27th. Despite a few close calls, Porter's prudence and some solid impromptu work by the Union engineers allowed the fleet to make it to Alexandria with uh, some damage, but only down one boat. The loss was the ironclad ram Eastport, the same vessel that ran aground at the start of the campaign and which had to be scuttled due to damage sustained when it was attacked by an enormous alligator. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, The damage was from a river mine. Unfortunately for the Navy, what may have been their biggest challenge of the campaign was still to come. Just south of Alexandria, there was a one-mile stretch of rough water that, at the current level, the flotilla simply could not hope to cross. The American Battlefield Trust's article about the site says it, quote, consisted of a waterfall, a series of rapids, and a second waterfall, end quote. Making matters worse, the water was already under three and a half feet, with a current running at about 10 miles per hour, and there was no indication that the level would rise anytime soon. This would be tough for any of the boats that Porter had brought, but the big ironclads in particular needed seven feet double the current level. For the time being, the flotilla was essentially stranded in Alexandria. The lack of mobility was dangerous, as opportunistic rebels were likely to take another crack at destroying the flotilla, and the next time around, they were bound to be better equipped than at Blair's Landing. Fortunately, Banks' army was now there to offer protection, but Banks was under orders to withdraw south without delay, so the army wouldn't be able to linger long. Into this dilemma stepped a 36-year-old engineer from Wisconsin, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Bailey. Stephen Smith and George Castile, writing for the Louisiana Archaeological Survey and Antiquities Commission, say of Bailey, quote, Joseph Bailey's presence with the Red River Expedition was, in a sense, one of those coincidences of history that sometimes result in turning the course of events. His knowledge of engineering was not acquired through formal study at West Point. Instead, he had learned practical engineering on the Wisconsin frontier. End quote. Bailey had 20 years of experience with river engineering projects, 
Uh, before the war, he had built, designed, and supervised river-based construction projects in the Midwest and the Great Lakes region. Colonel Bailey had already earned a reputation uh, in the Union Army uh, as a guy who could pull off tough projects using only the resources at hand. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey suggested to General Banks and Admiral Porter that, with the right strategy and using the materials that they had access to, they could build a dam that would raise the water level enough to let the gunboats navigate the stretch of rough water south of Alexandria. Bailey's proposal was to build a multi-part wing dam at a 750-foot-wide section of the Red River. The dam would be designed to narrow the river and, in doing so, create a reservoir. Two heavy barges, loaded down, sunk and secured in the middle, would bookend the wings. Once the dam gathered enough water in the reservoir, Bailey would release the dam and the gunboats would use the sudden rush of water to run the rapids, including the six-foot waterfall just below the dam. Bailey's design used different materials for the wings on the opposite sides of the river. This was because different materials were available on each side. So the west side used stone and building materials that could be salvaged from nearby structures, while the east side wing relied on timber harvested from the woods along the river. Now, for his part, Admiral Porter was confident that the project would not work. But he gave Bailey the go-ahead anyway because, you know, they didn't have any other options. Admiral Porter's recollection of Bailey's design, as reported by Smith and Castile, was, quote, The proposition looked like madness, and the best engineers ridiculed it. But Colonel Bailey was so sanguine of success that I requested General Banks to have it done, and he entered heartily in the work, end quote. Banks assigned 3,000 soldiers to the project. They were lucky enough to have men experienced in the kind of work that needed done. A main infantry regiment composed of lumberjacks, for example, were tasked with felling trees for the necessary timber. And a New York regiment had builders with masonry experience who got the job of placing the stones that formed the backbone of the dam's southern wing. A soldier who was on the scene gave a great summary of the two-week-long construction project, and this quote is abridged from a longer quotation in Smith and Castile's Louisiana Archaeological Commission work. Quote, Night and day the work was carried on without cessation. The men worked willingly and cheerfully, although many were compelled to stand up to their waist in water during the damp and chilly nights and under a burning sun by day and notwithstanding a very many had no faith in the success of the great undertaking. Trees were falling to the ground under the blows of the stalwart pioneers of Maine. Mules and oxen were dragging the trees, denuded of their branches, to the river's bank. Wagons heavily loaded were moving in every direction. Flatboats carrying stone were floating with the current, while others were being drawn up the stream in the manner of canal boats. Meanwhile, hundreds of men were at work at each end of the dam, moving heavy logs, wheeling brick out to the cribs, carrying bars of railway iron to the barges. On each bank of the river, thousands of spectators, officers of both services, sailors, soldiers, camp followers, and citizens of Alexandria, all eagerly watching our progress and discussing the chances of success. End quote. By May 8th, Bailey's Dam had raised the water level to 5 feet. 
But the following day, an unintentional breach in the dam released a large volume of the reservoir's water. Admiral Porter hurried into action and ordered his gunboats to attempt the run. Three opportunistic gunboats, led by the Lexington, barreled full speed ahead into the temporary flood of water, and notwithstanding a rough, perilous ride, all three made it safely through the rapids. Now, the breach was a big setback that called for substantial repairs and modification to the original design uh, to get the rest of the boats through the rapids. But the Lexington's successful run amounted to a proof of concept, having shown that Colonel Bailey's plan could in fact work. Colonel Bailey designed a repair plan to reinforce the construction and add two smaller support dams upstream, directing the water toward the deeper area that the larger dam created. After around two weeks of planning and construction, the primary dam was completed on May 11th, and the support dams and repairs were ready by the 13th. The six big gunboats still upriver above the rapids prepared to make the run by moving into the deep water gathered above the dam. When go time came, thousands of observers gathered on the riverbanks and army bands added to the atmosphere. The Mound City got the honor of going first. The boat steamed into the current created by the dams, scraped its bottom against the riverbed, pulled free, and rushed through the rapids, propelled forward by a full head of steam and the powerful rush of water created by Bailey's Dam. The Mound City did its best to steer, but the strong current dictated the course as the boat navigated over the waterfall and through the rapids and into the safety of the benign waters below. The other boats followed, each successfully running the rapids to the cheers of thousands of onlookers. Now, this is one of those things where you just really wish that there had been uh, you know, video cameras at the time. Between the, the cheering crowds and the big ironclads, uh, high-speed runs through the rapids, it, it must have been a sight to see. Now, only two days later, Admiral Porter's flotilla returned to the safety of the Mississippi River's deep waters, averting the potential disaster thanks to Joseph Bailey's clever feat of improvised engineering. The Union Army still had a march ahead of it. Bailey's Dam was Yankee ingenuity at its best. It gave the soldiers, sailors, and press a positive story to latch on to. Accounts of the Red River campaign inevitably bring up the questionable strategy, the poor planning, and the Army versus Navy bickering. But it would have been a lot worse if not for Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Bailey. On May 13th, as the gunboats prepared to run the rapids, the Union Army began its withdrawal from Alexandria, Louisiana. Now, we won't rehash the opening to this episode, but suffice to say, as the Army vacated the town, a huge fire broke out that raged through 22 city blocks, destroying, among other things, the courthouse and two large churches in the heart of Alexandria. Now, as we mentioned, there's some dispute over who actually started the fire. Uh, Blame is variously assigned to Union-loyal Louisiana militia, federal troops, or criminal gangs trying to exploit a chaotic situation in the wake of the Union withdrawal. General A.J. Smith's men, veterans with experience in destruction while on campaign with Sherman, and also the last Federals to leave Alexandria, and the most likely to directly disobey Nathaniel Banks' orders, uh, they seem to be the most likely culprit. 
As the fires got rolling, some of the Union soldiers still in town joined residents in trying to extinguish the flames. Others looted homes in evacuated areas until the heat became unbearable. Regardless, Nathaniel Banks' Army of the Gulf left Alexandria on May 15th. They still had a ways to march to reach the safety of Union-occupied southeastern Louisiana, and Dick Taylor wasn't quite ready to give up his efforts to prevent Banks' escape. Throughout the march, rebel snipers and cavalry harassed the Yankees, making the movement uncomfortable but not presenting a significant threat. Dick Taylor still wanted to land a big shot, but it would have to come under ideal circumstances, given the very large numerical discrepancy between the two sides by this point of the campaign. General Taylor took a crack at it at Mansura on May 16th. Taylor positioned a few thousand rebels in a field in front of the withdrawing Yankees. The Confederate position allowed them to block the three good roads that the Federals could use to continue their withdrawal. When the Union Army approached, there was some skirmishing and the artillery traded punches for a few hours. But Taylor was ultimately forced to abandon the position when a mass of Union infantry prepared for an attack on his flank. The Confederates simply didn't have the manpower to commit to a full battle on even terms. And the next serious clash that might impede the Yankee withdrawal came at Yellow Bayou, starting May 17th, the day after Mansura. The Federal Army arrived at the Atchafalaya River and prepared for a crossing. Once across, the Union Army would be in much better shape, mostly protected against any large-scale Confederate attack and less exposed to snipers and cavalry harassment. Now, to get across the Atchafalaya, the Yankee engineers would first need to build a bridge. Taylor's rebels were positioned at Yellow Bayou, coming up with a plan to contest the crossing. But the Yankees learned of their location, and Banks dispatched Brigadier General Joseph Mower to confront Taylor before he could put a plan into action. The battle at Yellow Bayou started with a Union frontal assault that pushed the Confederates back. Uh, But a Confederate counterattack then pushed the Federals back. That pattern repeated a couple times until the most memorable event of the battle occurred. A stray spark, or something of that sort, ignited a fire in dry grass and leaves on the battlefield. The flames quickly spread out of control, Before long, both sides were forced to abandon the field to avoid the fire. Yellow Bayou and the forest fire that followed prevented Rebel General Dick Taylor from making any further effort to stop the Union crossing of the Atchafalaya River. The delay had bought Wisconsin engineer Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Bailey enough time to once again come through in a pinch, though not quite as dramatically as with uh, his dam that we discussed earlier. This time, Bailey designed and constructed an improvised pontoon bridge using a series of transport boats that were latched together to stretch all the way across the river. Uh, By the time uh, Taylor's Confederates had regrouped from the Battle of Yellow Bayou and the forest fire that came after, Bailey already had the bridge up, and the entire army of the Gulf was on the other side by May 20th. Thus, the Battle of Yellow Bayou and the subsequent crossing brought what was sort of an anticlimactic end to the Red River campaign. Dick Taylor, with his undermanned force, didn't get another chance to land a decisive blow against former Speaker of the House turned General Nathaniel Banks, though it wasn't for lack of trying. 
The total casualties for the campaign were around 9,000 Union and a little over 6,000 Confederate. Only one of the impressive flotilla of Union gunboats didn't make it out, just the ironclad ram Eastport. Losing just the one was a fortunate outcome. Had Joseph Bailey not come through with his dam, or had the rebels uh, brought bigger cannons, things could have gone much worse for the Union Navy. It was something of an accomplishment to just navigate the shallow, winding water of the Red River, which Admiral Porter later labeled, quote, the most treacherous of all rivers. There is no counting on it according to the rules which govern other streams, end quote. But that was small consolation. The campaign had been a colossal failure that uselessly tied up Union resources that could have been applied toward winning the war. The Red River campaign had been designed, in large part, to destroy the Confederate war economy in the trans-Mississippi states, ending meaningful rebel resistance in the region. In practice, the Union defeat had the opposite effect, giving the rebels a morale boost when they sorely needed it, and quite possibly allowing the Confederates to continue the fight longer than would have otherwise been possible, had the significant resources squandered in the bayou been put to productive use elsewhere. Now, morale boost notwithstanding, the Red River was arguably, uh, depending on how you uh, define these things, the Confederacy's last significant clear-cut victory. The campaign's principal strategic impact, if any, was only to delay the inevitable. Uh, Rebel General Richard Taylor was unable to land the haymaker that he sorely wanted, and Taylor would carry a grudge against Kirby Smith over that issue for the rest of his life. As things stood, Porter's boats exited the Red River, mostly unscathed, and Banks's Union army was defeated, but still intact and ready to fight the rebels elsewhere, absent their uh, now-former commander, General Nathaniel Banks. Although its strategic impact on the war was minimal, the campaign would prove to have significant consequences on the careers of some of the major players. Nathaniel Banks came out of it the worst. Banks' status and reputation took a massive hit as a result of the botched expedition. The presidential run that he had been seriously considering when they set out in March seemed a preposterous idea by the time they returned in May. Most painful for the former Speaker of the House, he was no longer taken seriously as a military man after the Red River. The dismal performance resulted in a humiliating congressional investigation, and General Grant directed General Edward Canby to take over Banks' command, though Banks did keep his political position in Louisiana. You may remember uh, Canby as the victor of the New Mexico campaign. Now, General Banks technically retained his officer's commission for another year uh, through the end of the war, but he was given nothing to do militarily during that period. U.S. Grant had lost confidence in Banks, the general, so Banks, the politician, focused on his role in Louisiana's civil affairs. Upon his return to New Orleans, he uh, administered elections for Union-controlled Louisiana, the first elections under the new Louisiana state constitution that General Nathaniel Banks had a hand in drafting. But Nathaniel Banks was on a losing streak. The House of Representatives in D.C., where Banks had served as speaker, rejected the newly elected Louisiana congressman, 
due in part to hostility that the radicals had towards Nathaniel Banks. Banks tendered his formal resignation from the Army in May 1865 and returned to politics. Fortunately, he still had some friends in Massachusetts, and he was still a gifted speaker, which was an invaluable asset for a 19th century politician. So he was able to somewhat turn things around and get elected to Congress again shortly after the war, overcoming opposition from Massachusetts Republican Party officials and appealing directly to the voters. Banks spent another eight years in Congress after the war, but rose no higher. Now, Admiral David Dixon Porter uh, had enough standing that his involvement with the Red River campaign didn't uh, do any real damage to his career. He successfully spun the results as General Banks' fault and the Army's fault. Uh, Porter informed General Sherman with uh, his characteristic uh, lack of diplomacy that, quote, the Army was shamefully beaten by the rebels, end quote. Afterwards, Porter told the Navy Department that he was done with freshwater duty, and he received a new gig overseeing the North Atlantic blockade. Now, Porter uh, also made a big pile of money selling the cotton that he had appropriated in Louisiana as a war prize. Porter didn't have a problem with uh, General Banks's bringing along the cotton purchasers, you know, per se. Uh, he just didn't go about doing it the right way. The arguments between Confederate Generals Kirby Smith and Richard Taylor grew even more heated in the weeks after the end of the campaign. Taylor was certain and he may have been right, that by diverting a big portion of General Taylor's army in the middle of the campaign to go fight Union General Steele in Arkansas, Kirby Smith had blown a perfect opportunity to do serious damage to the Union in Louisiana. Had he had his entire force, Taylor believed, he could have defeated Banks and captured or destroyed Porter's freshwater fleet as many of the boats waited immobile and with limited defenses for the engineers to get the water level high enough for the ironclads to pass. Kirby Smith politicked to have Taylor removed, or at least reprimanded for insubordination, uh, but nothing much came of it. Richard Taylor was too valuable as a field commander to let his uh, many personality conflicts and bickering with other officers take him out of the fight. Instead, Richmond gave General Taylor command of the Confederate Department composed of Mississippi, Alabama, and eastern Louisiana for the closing months of the war. And for a short period, he led the remnants of the Army of Tennessee after Hood's catastrophic misuse of it. During the first week of May, 1865, Richard Taylor surrendered to Union General Edward Canby, with whom Grant had replaced Nathaniel Banks. In his uh, memoirs, Dick Taylor relays uh, an amusing story from the surrender at Citronelle, Alabama. The exchange that, that Taylor is describing here is with Canby's chief of staff, Union General Peter Osterhaus, a Prussian officer and socialist who had left Prussia and sought refuge in the U.S. after taking part in the ultimately unsuccessful 1848 revolution. You sometimes see this um, story told as though Taylor's interaction was with Canby himself, but um, Canby was, uh, of course, not German. He was uh, from Kentucky. Okay, quoting from Taylor's memoirs uh, called Destruction and Reconstruction, 
And, and bear in mind that this is um, this is Richard Taylor's recollection of events. Um, and uh, please pardon the extended quotation. There was, as ever, a skeleton at the feast, in the person of a general officer who had recently left Germany to become a citizen and soldier of the United States. This person, with the strong accent and idioms of the fatherland, comforted me by assurances that we of the South would speedily recognize our ignorance and errors, especially about slavery and the rights of states, and rejoice in the results of the war. In vain, Canby and Palmer tried to suppress him. On a celebrated occasion, an emperor of Germany proclaimed himself above grammar, and this earnest philosopher was not to be restrained by canons of taste. I apologized meekly for my ignorance, on the ground that my ancestors had come from England to Virginia in 1608, and in the short intervening period of 250-odd years had found no time to transmit to me correct ideas of the duties of American citizenship. Moreover, my grandfather, commanding the 9th Virginia Regiment in our Revolutionary Army, had assisted in the defeat and capture of the Hessian mercenaries at Trenton, and I lamented that he had not, by association with these worthies, enlightened his understanding. My friend smiled blandly and assured me of his willingness to instruct me. Happily for the world, since the days of Huss and Luther, neither tyranny nor taste can repress the Teutonic intellect in search of truth or exposure of error. A kindly, worthy people, the Germans, but wearing on occasion. End quote. Kirby Smith remained in overall command of the Trans-Mississippi Department until the department's surrender at the end of May 1865. Uh, which was actually conducted by Simon Bolivar Buckner, who worked for Kirby Smith, and, and you may remember um, was also the guy who had been delegated the unenviable uh, task of surrendering Fort Donelson to uh, uh, Ulysses Grant um, three years earlier. Kirby Smith surrendered his field command a week later at Galveston, Texas, and after the war, Kirby Smith fled first from Texas into Mexico and then to Cuba. He returned to the U.S. the next year, 1866, after his wife arranged for safe return and a pardon in return for Kirby Smith's taking an oath of loyalty. Kirby Smith spent the remainder of his days as a college professor and administrator, working for the University of Nashville and the University of the South. And before Edmund Kirby Smith died in Tennessee in March 1893, he was the last living Confederate full general, outliving PGT Beauregard by a month. jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.